Paratopia, we have a very special guest. Please welcome Dr. Phil Hazley. He is a professor of anthropology at Niagara Community College. He is a member of MUFON, and most recently, and most famously, around the internets. Uh, perhaps you've read an article or two wherein he's been calling for a university-level study of ufology. Basically, he wants uh, ufology to be a course taught in colleges and universities. So, let's hear all about it. Here's Dr. Phil. Okay, it's not that Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil Hazley. Hey, Paratopia, it's Jeff and Jeremy here with you again on a Friday night. Our guest tonight is Dr. Phil Hazley. He is basically calling for the UFO subject to be put into studies in, uh, on, a, on a university level. Am I right in that, Professor? We're, we're talking about uh, bringing this in as a legitimate study to scholastic activities, right? Yes, I think that, that uh, the time has come when that can happen uh, and should happen. Um, I think uh, since UFO studies have been marginalized for probably 60 years now, uh, and uh, you know there has been no slack in the amount of, uh, of appearances of the phenomena. It has affected our culture and, and our individual lives in so many ways. Uh, something that enduring and something that has that kind of effect is very definitely uh, in need of much closer study and much uh, better appreciation by the general populace and by uh, scientists particularly. Now, your your main interest in this would be in a an anthropology sense, right? I mean, this would be uh, why do people react the way they do to the unknown? Uh, is that is that your main focus, or are you mainly focused on the UFO thing specifically, and not so much the paranormal in general as as say ghost phenomena or ESP or any of those other other kind of uh, I don't know tandem topics? Well, I would say that. Um... You know, when I started out as a as the MUFON section director here in Western New York, you know, my primarily uh, interest was UFOs, and uh, from an anthropological point of view, uh, interested in it as a case of how people do react to different uh, uh, types of unusual stimuli, and uh, certainly also though the UFO phenomenon itself, and you know, like most people. Uh, being interested in just what it all really means. However, you know, as I went deeper into the study and got to know more and more people who were witnesses, ex- you know, experiencers, and uh, other people involved with the with the uh, phenomena, you know, you have no really no choice but to be dragged into screaming and kicking sometimes uh, the whole uh, realm of paranormal things, particularly once you get involved with abductees. It's virtually impossible to ignore the fact that that's part of that whole experience uh, is uh, uh, paranormal phenomena in general that goes right along with the abduction experience. How do you approach an investigation on your own or with a team? Do you, uh, uh, what would be your, your method of operation at the very onset? Well, it's going to depend upon, of course, what the case is. I get the cases sent to me by either MUFON Central or mm-hmm. or I get them uh, on my own by, uh, you know, contacts with people who have, you know, friends, relatives, and so on. Uh, but depending upon the type of case, if it's a, if it's a relatively distant sighting or something of that nature, 
uh, it involves basically questioning the witness uh, uh, at length, uh, trying to uh, pin down exactly uh, uh, what they saw and where they saw it and under what conditions they saw it, uh, basically referring to uh, you know, astronomical information and observations, meteorological data, uh, basically trying to figure out that there's some kind of natural object, uh, you know, that might be involved here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if the case warrants it, uh, perhaps consulting our uh, local uh, weather folks at the airport uh, in terms of their radar observations or perhaps even the airbase here in Niagara Falls for radar observations if it happens to be limited to this area. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of things that we do, and uh, we usually do it in teams of two, okay. uh, you know, basically to uh, allow us to keep a check on each other and to uh, watch ourselves in terms of how we question witnesses, in terms of making sure we don't lead them, make sure we don't, uh, you know, take them off in the wrong directions. Okay. Um, so, it's, it, I mean, it's yeah. fairly standard then, I mean, as far as... You know, it's fairly standard MUFON operating procedure to, to, oh, yeah. and to those do the form of questions. Muf- MUFON has got those kinds of cases down pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, you know, the problem uh, becomes and becomes much more uncertain. Uh, it comes when you get into cases which are close encounters and even more so abductions. There's literally no format that MUFON has developed that really allows you to deal with the long-term encounters of someone who may have been having encounters for 20 years and continues to have them. It's uh, almost impossible to uh, you know, summarize that on a form you know, or to uh, really reduce it to data you know, in a simple way. Uh, so that becomes a matter of, uh, of you uh, developing a relationship uh, with the people concerned uh, and uh, over time, you know, basically uh, investigating, you know, the happenings that occur to them uh, as best you can, and with the uh, uh, with the instruments that you have to actually uh, uh, try to figure out what's going on. So can I can I assume that your outlook on this when you approach it is that you approach this as a nuts and bolts phenomena as opposed to something a little bit more exotic or complex? Than, than the norm? Hmm. Uh, let's say my first, this first is, uh, assumption you know, is that this is something that is going to be observable and material enough for me to investigate it uh, in a straightforward way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is uh, it, something, however, that uh, you know, is not always met you know, in terms of my uh, experiences uh, because uh, uh, there are a lot of things that uh, uh, people observe and have happened to them uh, that can happen quickly and uh, may leave no traces, yet have enormous impact upon their uh, their personalities and upon their uh, psychological well-being uh, and uh, how they perceive other people around them as well. Uh, so uh, those types of phenomena... Uh, the transient, uh, more transient mental phenomena, the more transient uh, uh, even you know, physical or conscious phenomena are m- much more difficult to, uh, to handle in terms of investigations. Do you ever go so far as to actually study the person more than the phenomena that you're there to talk about? I mean, if someone has a UFO sighting at, at very close range and 
maybe subsequently has a, a, a close encounter experience with some sort of, of, of being of some sort. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go so far as to focus more on that person, what's going on in their lives, uh, you know, or are they in any sort of uh, liminal state at all? Are they um, uh, switching jobs? I mean, do you go in that depth w- yeah. with your investigations? In a word, yes. Uh, and what do you find in that? I mean, what 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 commonalities have you found in in, in the people that you've looked at? Well, uh, the com- there's some commonalities in uh, uh, in the people that, uh, particularly, I would say, among abductees. You know, there are some commonalities of of experience and of, of personality type. There seems to be a high frequency of people, I would say, who have uh, artistic background or basically a uh, creative type of uh, background. Many of them are in uh, professions which call upon creativity, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, these people have, uh, oh, uh, I guess you would say a, um, uh, how could I put it, a more fluid you know, ability uh, to uh, relate to their outer circumstances and to the environment, perhaps, than other people. A more uh, a creative response to the environment, I guess I'd say, mm. uh, than perhaps other people have. Uh, you know, other than, you know, than that, you know, some of the things which I have not encountered have surprised me more because in reading the literature I have, you know, been thought I might actually see this. Uh, for example, I had heard from several abduction researchers that uh, certain uh, racial or ethnic groups would tend to be more frequently found among abductees. And uh, uh, in surveys I've done in Niagara County, you know, as well as in my own investigations, haven't seen that to be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, I remember reading a, a book which specified that Native Americans would have higher degrees of uh, abduction experiences, but that hasn't proved to be so in the investigations that I have done or in surveys of the county, you know, that I've been working on either. Have you, have you I'm just curious, just for my own sake, uh, peace of mind here, have you found that there is any ethnic connection at all? I haven't found any uh, okay. in this, uh, you know, at least in this region. Um, hmm. I can't speak for the United States as a whole, but... Uh, I've, you know, as part of a survey, I've interviewed and uh, had others, you know, uh, who I've trained interview about 2,800 people, you know, in Niagara County alone, uh, and uh, you know, where there are both Native American populations and many, many other ethnic groups. I have not been able to see any real uh, differences in terms of, uh, you know, the likelihood of abduction or the experiences among them. Okay, are you um, are you seeing I don't know a, a a definitive separation, I should say, between the literature that you've probably read over the years about investigations and about the phenomena as a whole, and then once you got actively involved in studying cases or investigating, uh, you know, abduction cases and studying the people involved, are you finding that um, I guess the commonly held theorems and theories and uh, methodologies don't seem to really hold up to what you're seeing out in the field? I would say that the uh, uh, the idea that every abductee is exactly alike, you know, in their experiences, both as children or as adults, 
uh, is uh, is simply not true. Uh, you know, the idea that uh, uh, there's one commonality like uh, childhood sexual abuse, for example, which is commonly put forward, you know, is uh, you know uh, you know going to be there in all cases. I haven't found that to be so uh, necessarily, or at least in which they've been willing to share with me. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, I do find, however, that uh, uh, there are. Uh, I guess you'd have to say occasionally startling repeat patterns of experience, you know, in that way, of individual episodes. Uh, I remember talking very recently to a lady who, uh, uh, very well-educated, very uh, uh, articulate and, you know, uh, social worker by trade, uh, who had an experience, uh, you know, which virtually duplicated in most of the uh, the details, the Allagash abductions. Mm. Okay. I mean, right down to many of the small details. Uh, Does that make you give pause that maybe it's a, a, um, an issue of cultural contamination with someone like that? It could be. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, that was the, one of the questions that I did ask her, have you, how much do you know about the UFO literature? Have you studied it? Uh, do you, uh, uh, you know, do you uh, know much about the, uh, uh, the abduction issue? And she admitted that she knew a little bit about the abduction issue, but she was not an aficionado. I've not broached the Allagash abduction episode uh, with her because I'm still investigating her case. And uh, I don't want her go looking into it and basically you know, right. decide at that point to go and do something with it. Right. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, you do see repeat patterns, and sometimes you get strange little verifications of an incident. I was talking to an abductee who has been an abductee since the age of five, according to his testimony. And he told me about a very strange incident that occurred to him as he was driving down a little rural country road here in western New York. He was uh, traveling uh, to the north along a, uh, a country road near Lake Ontario. Uh, and uh, he looked to his left, and all of a sudden he saw this flock of uh, ducks that was flying across this open field. And then all of a sudden the ducks hit what appeared to be an invisible wall and then just fell to the ground. Uh, he didn't know whether they were dead or what their situation was because he continued on in his car. But it was you know, obviously pretty, a pretty strange situation. Uh, I didn't, you know, I'd never heard anything like that before. But about six months later, I think it was, I was listening to one of the UFO hunters broadcasts, specifically the one on Stevensville. Uh, and at the end of uh, one of the segments, a woman came on and talked about having seen a group of birds, you know, fly into what appeared to be an invisible barrier, hit the barrier, and fall down. Mm. Uh, you get these kinds of, um, how can you say it, kind of confirmations of unusual stories that really puzzle you, you know, in that way. Right. As to, you know, and just, you know, you don't know what to make of them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd have, to, I'd have to check the timeline with Stevensville, but I, I do know that the the bird flying into an invisible type of thing, you know, that was a prominently featured scene in the movie Signs with Mel Gibson. That was one of the was things. It really? Yeah. yeah I have not yeah. seen that movie. You know, I'd so. like to, I'd like to know what, you know, the timeline of that. I, I can't remember exactly when that was released, but, but that did come out. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like a big, uh, 
you know, cultural contamination guy. Um, mm-hmm. In recent weeks, um, this program, I'm not sure if you've been listening or not the past few weeks, but uh, uh, we've run into some really big issues with the uh, regression hypnotherapy issue with in regard to retrieving memories from experiencers. And uh, we had Dr. Scott Lillenfeld on, who uh, authored uh, many books on this subject, but uh, in particular, I believe it was called Pseudoscience and Psychology, Mm -hmm. uh, in which he laid out for us uh, all of the really large and crucial issues that come up when you're talking about regression hypnotherapy and how it's not really a valid tool to be using uh, in, in this field at all because the data is simply not reliable. Um, uh, cultural contamination being only one of those problems, although a big one. Uh, how are you uh, dealing with experiencers who uh, are, are they recalling outright? Uh, are you using any kind of tool whatsoever to to garner memories from these people? I personally don't use any hypnosis or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. In fact, I basically uh, wave. Uh, in the other direction, you know, for the uh, for the abductees that I've dealt with, uh, I want them to try to remember what they can on their own, uh, because for the reasons that I simply tell them, uh, you, know, you can go that route, and I certainly can't stop you, right. but I'm not going to encourage it, you know, for several reasons. One, you know, being the the possibility that it may turn out traumatic for you in terms of remembering things or, you know, perhaps uh, or manufacturing memories that could turn out to be rather difficult for you to bear. Sure. Uh, other, also, because, uh, simply put, I know that hypnosis, although it can, be, uh, can produce truthful testimony, is certainly not the royal road to truth. Uh, <laughs> and so, basically, uh, you know, you have to take it as uh, something that may produce something useful, uh, may uh, be helpful, but you know, I'm, fr- I'm frankly leery. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. You know, I don't uh, try to get people to do that. And I would just assume, for my own purposes, uh, have them remember what they can remember and hope that time and, and outside stimuli will increase their memory mm-hmm. uh, on their own. Now, uh, as an anthropologist, and I, I have to kind of tell you a little bit about what I found about people mm-hmm. in this who had never had an experience in their lives and then just all of a sudden popped into a, either a MUFON meeting or, uh, uh, you know, uh, if I was talking someplace and, and they, they would come up to me after a lecture was over. I personally found that a lot of people tended to dissolve spiritually if they had any sort of spiritual bend at all, whether it be Christianity, Judaism, whatever, that after this experience, depending on how profound it was for them, they would then question that religious belief. They would question the nature of reality. Um, Many times their lives would fall into complete disarray after something like this. In other words, the divorces seem to be prevalent in a lot of people. Um, uh, I, I don't know, kind of a, an obsessive tendency to find out what they saw, what it all means, what it means to them. Do you find these similar things in, in the people that you're speaking with up there? 
I've seen that in some. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, I have uh, a person who is a member of our group who uh, at least initially represented that he had never had such experiences, but now has come forward to say that he has had you know abduction experiences and is undergoing them and he clearly is going through a process of uh, what appears to be trauma and disorganization you know in that way um, others such as this individual I told you about who had begun his abductions since at the age of five mm-hmm. have a very stable marriage and uh, you know basically seems to be in other fashions pretty well adjusted um, you know, so I would say that uh, what you're describing, you know, could be described, I think, a, as a pattern, but not the exclusive pattern that I have run into. Right, right. Now, you want to bring this into kind of a scholastic uh, framework here, and I'm just curious, how would you plan on actually doing that? Because one of the things that uh, I know I was speaking on another radio show a couple of weeks ago about um, – Paranormal TV, which is all the rage right now with Ghost Hunters and all these different uh, paranormally bent shows. Um, and, I, and I made the statement that it, it, it seems to me to be a little difficult to form any kind of successful program around a phenomena that is so incredibly elusive, um, which no doubt this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how would you go about teaching this in a, in a classroom when – to tell you the truth, we, we really know so very little about it and about its possible origins. Um, well, you know, I, that, that's kind of why I asked you about how you, how you approached this at, at the onset, you know, because a lot of people would immediately come out with, uh, well, I think the extraterrestrial hypothesis is, is the way to go. I think that's what we're dealing with. And, and you didn't say that. You leave yourself very open to, it seems, many possibilities. Well, I think you've hit it right on the on the head there. Uh, I don't uh, necessarily buy the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Uh, when you read witness descriptions of their encounters and experiences, uh, they are too various in terms of the effect upon the individual and the precise details of the psychological transformations and the psychological and and mental. Uh, how would you say effects you know, of the of the phenomena to really uh, uh, strike me as as you know conclusively pointing to one particular phenomena. Uh, also, in terms of the extraterrestrial, there's some fundamental things that have always bothered me about it. Uh, you know, the uh, the skeptical or the uh, debunker may explain some this somewhat differently, but. Uh, one of the things that has bothered me always is the uh, uh, is the simple fact that uh, you know, 99 out of 100 humo- uh, humanoids that are met are just that humanoids. Right. You know, you know, they have two arms, two legs, you know, a mouth, and so on. Uh, the likelihood of the human form or anything much like it uh, evolving again on another planet, uh, I think, is pretty remote. You know, you know, it's not even that common on this planet, you know, right. among animal forms. <laughs> True, right, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, that strikes me as, as being, you know, not very consistent with an extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, if you are to take literally what the, uh, what the witness sees as representing what 
he's really got there in terms of a of an entity. Uh, you know, that's uh, you know something which uh, has bothered me. Uh, also, uh, you know, there are the the arguments about the uh, intergalactic di distances and things like that. But I have to say that bothers me less than perhaps it might bother bother some people. Uh, the fact, you know, that uh, uh, you see commonly, you know, these objects within our atmosphere, but <laughs> encounters outside of it are really relatively rare, uh, also strikes me as being rather peculiar. Uh, you know, that uh, is something which uh, strikes me as you, know, you may be dealing with something you know, that is uh, either indigenous or certainly uh, goes and comes within the context of the confines of the earth in that way. Okay. So in terms of bringing this to a, a mainstream study, how would you do it? How, if you were writing the curriculum, what would you, uh, how would you do this? Well, uh, my main goal uh, would be to uh, convince the student who takes it uh, that there's a phenomenon here whatever its origin might be that is worthy of scientific attention and that number two that it has been systematically shoved aside and marginalized uh... i would probably start out by putting uh, a section in on really the history since nineteen forty seven of the of the phenomena and people's reaction to it and it would be uh... basically focused on here's the evidence that says that uh... this Phenomena is uh, is uh, not being taken seriously, and here's the here's the uh, uh, the hallmarks of that lack of proper investigation, and that if you want to call it that, cover up if you prefer, uh, that has been on occasion uh, you know come out in the open you know, on the part of uh, of uh, authorities. Uh, I would want them to have a historical background, and then I would introduce them simply. Uh, to the best cases of each type, uh, you know, basically of each of the major categories of, of sightings and experiences, and try to analyze them both in terms of, uh, of what they tell us about the phenomena, but also what they tell us about the people, you know, who are experiencing it and the times in which they were experienced. Uh, being an anthropologist, I'm always interested in cultural context, too. Uh, and that's something which would have to be part of looking at those individual cases. Right. How much were they uh, influenced by what was happening at that particular moment, you know, in America, American culture or in any other culture in which that case is embedded. Uh, I probably would go from there to looking at the various theories uh, about origins of what this phenomenon is uh, and perhaps uh, uh, look at uh, uh, the... Uh, Oh, I guess you'd have to say the uh, uh, the relative merits of each of the theories uh, in that way. Uh, I probably would uh, you know, also uh, you know want the students uh, to feed back into this in some fashion, you know, by uh, uh, thinking about uh, their social reactions of, of of a society confronted with a completely unexplained phenomenon of this nature. Uh, and trying to fit it into its worldview. In some ways, I think American society is very poorly prepared for, to deal with uh, a uh, completely unknown phenomena that may have uh, 
be interacting with it and has interacted with it for a very long time. And including that in our worldview, much more difficult for us than it might be for uh, an African villager or a Native American or uh, you know, even someone uh, from uh, the outback of Australia. Right. Uh, you know, we run the risk by our severely materialistic, skeptical uh, science, scientific nature of, uh, I guess, uh, I guess you'd say it canalizing or basically restricting our view of reality so that, you know, a real proof of a really unusual and, you know, overwhelming reality might actually really blow us apart. All right. Would you, uh, in, in your your curriculum for this, would you add in the thing that I think Jeremy and I tend to focus more on than anything else, which is the aspect that's been so long ignored in mainstream ufology, which is the high strangeness category of experience. Um, things to do that, that seem to have more to do with human perception and uh, cultural filters in experiencing the phenomena as a whole. Would you, uh, would would you kind of, I don't know, kind of keep that separate from this, or would you absolutely include that in some sort of uh, teaching, no matter no matter how ill defined that may be? Uh, would you include that in it? I'm kind of uh, at a loss to answer that question because I'm not sure how you define high strangeness uh, or what kind of events you might be talking about. Uh, that word gets thrown around a lot in ufology. You mm-hmm. know, everything from cattle mutilations to uh, you know, to uh, you know, Bigfoot sightings, you know, in association with the well, UFOs. Let me uh, let me uh, let me give you one. Uh, okay. Here's here's one that I got uh, some years ago, and we've talked about on the show before, which is uh, um, uh, I, I got a call from a, a family in, in a fairly rural area of Maryland, and uh, they had a, a central family home and uh, two smaller buildings uh, off from the house that housed their farm equipment. And uh, on one particular night, they had two balls of light hover over uh, the one building for a matter of minutes. And then the next night, uh, which is the night that they called me, they had uh, two lights hovering over the opposite building. When the farmer shone a light at the lights, uh, it was an upside down, uh, or I'm sorry, it wasn't an upside down. It was a right side up uh, tractor trailer tanker in the air. Hovering, uh, which then departed the scene at high speed. <laughs> now that's high strangeness. Um, but he is absolutely positive, without a shadow of a doubt, that what he saw was a tanker truck uh, in the air over his barn. Um, you know, another one was a woman reporting an object over a field um, some miles from her house that was the equivalent of an upside down uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, complete with lettering, windows, warp drive lights, the whole bit. Um, Things that seem to be, I don't know, what people expect to see or don't expect to see or some sort of uh, uh, cultural or mindset filter that they have um, that seems to be uh, more a matter of, of, of altered perception or altered states of consciousness than it does what are we really seeing here? Um, yeah, that's that's kind saying. of how I define high strangeness for for you in that in that way. Okay, 
Uh, I think I, yeah, I think that some cases of that sort of thing that would be critical to really talking about this issue because of the fact that uh, there seems to me pretty uh, convincing evidence that whatever this phenomena is, it interacts with the individual's own uh, mind and perhaps their own uh, relevant cultural information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and may have the capacity to change form, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, you know, basically present itself in different ways. Uh, now, whether that is simply something that's coming from the mind of the percipient or whether that is an interactive effect, you know, between whatever this thing is, uh, yeah, and, big uh, question. <laughs> yeah. you know, is a good question. Uh, but, you know, I was talking to a, um, a former deputy sheriff who, uh, was in the uh, it was a deputy sheriff in Florida, and he told me about a close encounter that he had on patrol one time, you know, in which he uh, he saw this uh, what first appeared to be a cigar-shaped craft, you know, basically hovering over woods, not more than a couple of hundred yards away, uh, and then you know, moving along, it rapidly turned its form into a more elongated cigar shape without any real major change in angle of view or anything of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there have been several recorded cases, like a famous one up in Labrador where you know, a UFO was seen to visually transform itself by pilots mm-hmm. you know, from a uh, uh, more conventional UFO into a, a plane-shaped UFO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, this kind of stuff does put you in the... Uh, uh, in the category of asking the question, uh, are these transformations really going on, or are they in the mind of the percipients, or are right. they being influenced to be in the mind of the percipient? Right. Uh, right. You know, it's uh, it's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. Well, I mean uh, that that kind of thing often, you know, as we said before on this show, is is one of the things that puts us into the realm of this is too much to take. It's too unbelievable to be true. But you hear it over and over and over again, um, you know, and, and I've said before that, you know, to, to relate the experience for anyone to relate the experience with 100 percent honesty is to almost be made a fool of because it, it, this phenomena seems to have its own built in escape hatch for that sort of thing. You know? Good way of putting it. <laughs> you know? Very good way Every, of putting it. You know what? Every guest I have one that I say that to snickers when I say that. Um, well, so we all know what we're talking about here. Um, so, I mean, it, see, that's something that in a curriculum manner, I mean, I don't, need, I don't even know how you go about presenting that. Um, that would be a really tough thing to, to define. Um, I think you might present it simply as interactive effects. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, basically, uh, which might include also, uh, uh, as uh, oh, I'm trying, Richard, uh, the fellow who does the pilot studies, whose last name I now have forgotten, uh, he works for NAR- NAR- Richard Haynes. Richard Haynes. Mm-hmm. Yes, he wrote a book about basically uh, uh, cases where it appears to be interaction between witnesses and, you know, and UFOs. Uh, where in one fashion or another the uh, UFO has responded to witnesses. Uh, either, you know, they flash a light at it and it comes toward them, mm-hmm. or they're thinking, you know, come closer and it comes closer. Uh, there's some kind of an interaction going on mentally, you know, in that way. Uh, you might 
curricularly, as you say, you know, lump these things into a basket of interactive effects of that sort. I don't know if that really uh, is much more than a convenience, but that is one way you could approach it. Right. Well, my last question before I, I turn it over to uh, Jeremy is, uh, you know, everybody gets into this for one reason or another, and it's usually that they've had some kind of experience with it. So my question is, have you? Uh, no. <laughs> no. I am, uh, <laughs> not in a, I've never seen a UFO. Wow. Uh, Come over to my house. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, well, I mean, you know, like, that's, like that's an honest young, answer. <laughs> like many young kids in the 1950s and early 60s, I uh, picked up you know, a book by Donald Kehoe when I was uh, maybe 10, 11 years old, uh, read through it, and uh, uh, was fascinated, you know, not only by the topic, but also by the fact that... Uh, Kehoe brought documentation, you know, and uh, clear documentation. Uh, And I remember taking it to a a teacher of mine, one who I respected very much, and, uh, you know, telling him I thought this book was really very interesting and he might be interested in it, and him just looking at it and saying, this is science fiction and I'm not interested in science fiction, and just sort of walking away. Mm. Uh, That happened several times in my uh, educational process, and each time... Uh, it sort of, besides irritating me, you know, uh, made, basically made me more curious. Uh, what finally uh, got me off the edge into actually getting into investigation was a conference that uh, I was one of the co-sponsors for at our college on false memory syndrome, in which a group of experts got up and, you know, for want of a better word, uh, basically commented at length upon uh, you know, a, a alien abduction as being uh, an instance of false memory. Uh, the arguments that they made for it, I thought, were uh, poorly supported by their data. Their data was flawed you know, in terms of two small samples and also uh, selection of abductees and other witnesses uh, by uh, advertising the papers for them. Mm, which I thought was the worst possible way to possibly get an abductee sample I ever heard right, of. Right. Um, you know, basically I thought it was bad science. Uh, and if the people came from Harvard, I thought the institution ought to be ashamed, you know, because of that. Mm. So uh, I, was, uh, uh, I was intrigued more because I felt like here's an area that people just really aren't doing the work and they're being misled by bad studies. And so that got me more interested too. Here's an area you could do research in and potentially maybe even find out something. Right. Of course, little did of course, I know. Of course, then you got into ufology and found out it's worse there than it is in the scientific <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, yeah, take it away, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let's see. You had said that your curriculum would um, go back to 1945. Do you have no love in your heart for airships? <laughs> what about the ancient astronaut theory? You know, all of that fun stuff. Do you do you see any merit to that, or do you is forty five your your cutoff point? I guess or forty seven. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm saying forty five. I'm willing to scout the possibility, you know, that there may be there may be something involved with these earlier episodes, but at the same time, they are so far in the past 
and so clouded by uh, storytelling, I guess you'd say, uh, that it's difficult for me to really work up a lot of enthusiasm for them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's hard enough, you know, to deal with the Roswell incident, you know, which has reached, you know, venerable age now. Uh, and that's something which uh, is uh, getting worse every year, of course, uh, in terms of the amount of available witnesses. But those things that go far back in the past like that are just hard for me to uh, uh, to focus on because you you end up with uh, such vague uh, data and such vague descriptions of what's going on mixed in with mythology and a whole lot of other stories in really ancient times. Well, just as an anthropologist, do you do you see a correlation between uh, ufology and, say, some of the things indigenous peoples have been saying forever, or shamanism speaks to, or even the occult? Do you see do you see similarities in these things? Well, you know, without having made a speci- uh, specific study of it, you know, I do know that there are a number of cultures who uh, have specified that. Uh, uh, beings came from the sky, you know, and had uh, wa- had interactions with people here on Earth. Uh, you know, that's I think uh, uh, something which is suggestive, you know, in that way. But in terms of taking it farther than that, uh, you know, can you really do that? You know, the uh, the interesting and suggestive uh, research done on the Dogon people, you know, of Central Africa and their knowledge about the uh, about Sirius, you know, and its uh, uh, and uh, its planetary system, you know, I guess, or its star system, rather, you know, is interesting, you know, also. But again, it's not clear whether this was cultural contact at a at information that uh, filtered in from Western society, or and uh, was you know, taken on by the Dogon, or something that's been around with them for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's a little. Uh, it's it gets into the area that I prefer to stand a little bit on on a more solid ground because the ground is slippery as it is. You know, without you know dealing with the problems of uh, faulty records and faulty uh, uh, types of uh, in, you know translations and interpretations mm-hmm. uh, that may come from the distant past. Well, what do you do with, let's see, Rick Strassman's DMT work? This is not something I'm familiar with. Tell me about it. Oh, really? Uh, well, basically that um, the the pineal gland creates DMT, um, which is a natural hallucinogen mm-hmm. in our systems. And he was basically allowed to do um, the first hallucinogenic studies since the LSD studies of, what, the 60s? Right. And, you know, so he thought that he would find People were tripping. <laughs> but what he actually came away from that with is that this is some sort of molecule in us that uh, tunes us into these other realities um, because people were seeing a lot of the same consistent imagery, meeting consistent beings. And, of course, some of them had abduction-type experiences and saw greys and, and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering what you do with that. I mean, and, uh, this is something that shaman in South America talk about quite a bit, you know, with their ayahuasca brew. Sure. Uh, and so, I mean, in, in other words, it's not, it's not completely distant past. Uh, it's just, I think something that we don't pay attention to, uh, that people are still saying it's just they're in cultures that are sort of tucked away or probably being bowled over by bulldozers. 
No, well, I absolutely agree that one of the most important thing that needs to be done, you know, is to understand better the dimensions of consciousness that may be interacting here with these uh, with these phenomena, uh, and the uh, just to what extent you know alterations in our consciousness can produce similar symptoms. However, I would caution anybody going down that line that. Uh, the typical UFO incident, and even the uh, even the uh, uh, the close encounter, uh, is oftentimes something that comes under circumstances which, you know, you know, seems to come out of the blue, and oftentimes very normal circumstances. You know, it doesn't necessarily come to you uh, only when you're sleeping, or only uh, when you're in some type of uh, uh, a traumatic situation or some type of uh, of emotional uproar you know it mm-hmm. comes you know to to normal people at normal times right. you know in that way uh and uh you know so you would really have to specify how does the, how, if con- if some aspect of our consciousness is really involved with triggering these phenomena or allowing us to experience this how does that happen uh, and how does it have what are the what are the triggers uh, and uh, I'd also have to know more about the experiments which I'm sorry I don't know uh, because to see how exact you know the similarities are to abductee experiences because that would make a lot of difference mm-hmm. uh, all that earlier studies on uh, you know abduction is birth trauma and things like that and a variety of other explanations that have involved uh, uh, you know, talking about uh, various uh, uh, experiences that humans may have that might have uh, given rise to abduction fantasies, you know, oftentimes give uh, uh, abduction scenarios that are only generally, in a general sense, like the ones that actually occur to abductees, which are oftentimes much more specific and much more uh, detailed mm-hmm. you know, in that way. So I would have to actually see what was produced using, you know, that uh, that chemical agent in that way. Well, I think it would be, you know, it's interesting if if what we're going to end up finding out is that here you have this intelligence that um, can sort of come into our lives through, like you're saying, myriad ways. You know, one would be this um, sort of manipulation of consciousness. The other would be perhaps through technological means, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, if we really look at all of this stuff and we go, okay, well, this is all sort of valid, then at what point do we realize um, we're not really studying anything? <laughs> it's like, it would be like a, a fish studying a fisherman you know, at that point, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I just, I think it's, it's an interesting idea to propose it as a class. I just don't know. I think that classes require an answer or require something firm, um, and I don't think that there's anything that we have firmly grasped onto. There, there are certainly theories that have come and gone, and certainly the ETH is probably uh, hopefully on its last legs. Um, but then what is there? Then you're just stuck with, well, there's this thing that's sort of been with us, and we don't really know anything about it except some of its effects, and even those might be culturally contaminated or the product of... Um, something we don't understand. I mean, what do you do with all that? How, how does that, how, how does that, how do people relate to that enough to go, yeah, I want to study that? Well, uh, let me just say something from the point of view of an anthropologist here. Anthropology courses about the, uh, about uh, comparative religion uh, 
are oftentimes based upon, for example, functional aspects of religion, what it does in a particular society. Uh, it doesn't specify, they don't specify what is the source of religion or what its particular, uh, 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 what its origins are, uh, but morally, merely study the effects that they have on uh, societies and in the people in them. Uh, one doesn't necessarily have to know the origin or the uh, or what the quote unquote true reality of something is in order to see its social dimensions uh, and its effect upon a society or a group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you may be dealing uh, with a very similar situation here. It may be that the most valid way presently of studying UFOs, you know, is to think about them in terms of their effects upon people and their societies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and try to infer as you know something about the nature of the phenomena themselves in terms of what they how they affect us you know in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the conundrums I find in in teaching. I teach a class in comparative religion, uh, actually, and uh, it's one of the things that kind of uh, is kind of annoying about my own profession is we've expe- we've uh, uh, skirted around the issue of uh, just what the experience of, uh, of religious uh, phenomena are to people in relation to uh, uh, their personal lives and things of that nature, but uh, basically have concentrated on what those phenomena do in a social sense and think that we have explained it all. You know? But we haven't said anything about the phenomena itself mm-hmm. uh, in that way. We've only explained you know, what its effects are on us you know, in that way. We like to put names on things, you know, you know, without really knowing what they are. Uh, and, you know, that's a little, uh, it's, it becomes a little annoying when people think they know something about something simply because they have a name. Right. Well, yeah, and then do you find that that's also difficult when you're talking to the media? I mean, the, we, the way we found out about you was uh, through the Telegraph interview um, that you did with them about wanting to do, or, or I guess they picked up the story. I don't know who you originally did. The interview yeah. with, but talking about you want to do this class, and uh, do you find that it's hard to do uh, an interview like that without being able to talk in sound bites about something like this? Well, I think it's hard to talk in sound bites about this, you know, and not be completely misunderstood. The uh, original interview I gave, uh, you know, which was with the Buffalo Evening News, was. Uh, <laughs> somewhat misconstrued, since I don't think I ever commented about making a class on the subject. Uh, <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, record scratch. Uh, so the whole theme of the show is, is bullshit? <laughs> now, I actually have put together such a class. Oh, excellent. Uh, and, uh, you know, intend, you know, in time to teach it. Uh, but uh, as in a point of fact, in that interview, which was taken just a few moments after a talk by Peter Robbins, you know, with me, uh, basically I did not, in fact, really talk about that. You know, it is something, though, that is certainly, to my uh, way of thinking, a very valid thing to do and long overdue to bring this into the academic mainstream. Mm-hmm. So it's as good as anything to talk about uh, in that way. What is the relationship between anthropology and psychology? Hostile. <laughs> no, not really, not entirely hostile. Uh, let's put it this way. Anthropologists uh, have a, a deep interest in social behavior, uh, 
in a cross-cultural sense, looking at people's customs, traditions, and cultural knowledge uh, of all sorts in a cross-cultural way, cross-society way. Psychologists are primarily interested in individual personality and its development and things of that nature, with the exception of the somewhat uh, crossover field of social psychology. Mm -hmm. uh, I like what psychologists do, and they offer some unique insights uh, you know, into uh, uh, individual phenomena, but uh, when, they try to when they try to reduce societies and social phenomena merely to uh, individual personality and individual uh, uh, types of phenomena, then they run aground, mm -hmm. uh, which is why, and I think you're on the right track, when you, uh, when you talk about uh, cultural contamination, it is a relevant factor here because uh, all these experiences are embedded in a culture of a particular time and place. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's something that uh, does have to be taken into consideration. It can't be simply reduced to uh, molecules and uh, you know, the workings of the brain. Right. Um, uh, I have some left field questions for you about MUFON. Sure. <laughs> one, sure. one is, um, do they have a stance? I mean, do they have any sort of... Uh, like the ETH, is that sort of their main stance? Do they have anything like that in their mission statement? In MUFON? Yeah. MUFON, uh, I believe, has primarily focused uh, throughout its history on the ETH. They are not, I would say, uh, totally without supporters of other uh, hypotheses. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and certainly the work we do as investigators does not depend upon the ETH you know, in any way. Uh, but it, uh, you know, there's no doubt that that is still the predominant hypothesis, I think, among uh, uh, MUFON investigators. Uh, I just don't happen to be one that necessarily entirely buys into that. Well, wh what do you think, here we are, however many decades later, still looking at the same sort of data that is going to produce the same sorts of answers. What do you think they're in it for now, or what are you in it for now if there's not something new that you can latch on to? Well, uh, I'll speak for myself, not for others, you know, on that regard. Everyone has their own reasons for being in this. Uh, and once they get into it, it becomes unreasoning anyways. It's obsessive. <laughs> Comes right down to it. Uh, in my own case, uh, I believe that, uh, you know, the phenomena uh, needs not wider study, but more minute study. I think the uh, phenomena you know, has been both blessed and cursed by people who want to explain it all you know, in one big all-inclusive theory uh, and expect it's all going to fit together you know, neatly in a package. Uh, and uh, that's something that a lot of cases you can't do. You know, I think that you know, one of the things that's going to need to be done is population studies uh, of individual human populations to see what factors, social, anthropological, psychological, are actually you know, at work you know, in unusual perceptions within specific populations. Uh, I think that it has to be done widely, and it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I uh, approach this with the idea that I'm not going to get this answer in my lifetime. Right. Uh, you know, and that uh, like any other science, it's going to build over 
and above any single scientist's lifetime, and that it's going to have to be worked from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there will be on occasion geniuses that'll come along that will advance things considerably. Uh, but uh, you know, there's too many people, and has been since the 1940s, who think that they can uh, go to heaven without dying. <laughs> right. You know, literally, uh, they think that they can come up with the answer, and it's going to basically uh, be just there and easily seen, and it ain't going to be that easy. Well, that sort of gets to a question I was trying to figure out how to word delicately, <laughs> which is that it seems uh, MUFON, pretty much in order to join MUFON, it's like the equivalent of getting a decoder ring. And I'm just, does that bother someone like you who is a doctor and a professor at a college that you're working alongside, uh, well, some of them are morons? Or do you think that it's great because it's sort of an equal playing field? I think that... Uh... Uh, the uh, nature of the uh, of the field and the nature of uh, MUFON is largely predicated upon what it's been made, you know, by the scientific community and by uh, the governmental authorities. Uh, if you're going to have uh, a science which will not be scientifically investigated, that can only leave uh, if it's going to be investigated. Although the amateur to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, I thank God for the amateur. Uh, there's a very interesting and I think kind of, uh, appropriate t-shirt that I saw at the last MUFON convention. It said down the back, doing the Air Force's work since 1969, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, could, might be amended to say doing the scientist's work, you know, since, uh, 1947. Right. Well, Uh, speaking of the military, do you think that, um, well, let me ask you, does MUFON go the way of we need disclosure to the extent that, for instance, the disclosure movement does? I mean, is that something that they rely on in terms of saying, well, this is why we're not getting any answers, because the government must know X and they're not sharing it with us? Well, I think there are individual uh, MUFON members who think that. For myself, uh, I don't really to be somewhat crude, give a rat's butt, you know, about whether the government discloses or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, want to do my my little search and, and do my little research, add my little uh, penny to the pile. Uh, if the government wants to help us out or offer, you know, a solution, uh, fine and dandy, but I'm not betting on it or counting on it. Uh, and I would say that for those who are, you're going, you're in all likelihood going to be sadly disappointed. Go about and do your own work, and you know, carry out your own research designs and do what you can do. Right. Well, do you think that the government, when when you look at the way they treat this issue, does it smack of a cover up? Still, I mean, do you think that they they still care about this issue? Do you think they're just sort of letting us? do what we want and, and they don't have to interfere anymore? Uh, or do you think that none of that ever happened to begin with? Oh, I, I don't think there's any real doubt that there has been a cover-up in the past. You know, everything from the Bolander memo you know, at the close of Project Blue Book in which Bolander admitted that uh, there had always been a separate route for important military uh, significant cases that didn't go through the Blue Book files and the Blue Book system. 
uh, you know, basically that's an admission right there. There's a cover up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just uh, you, I, I wonder I have to what, go any farther than that. I wonder what they're actually covering up because if if it's not the ETH, I mean, one would assume that they would maybe know more about what it is not. Maybe they've figured out it's not mm-hmm. aliens or something, whatever that is. You may be very what, right about that. Yeah, I wonder what those documents look like. The one. <laughs> <laughs> you may be very right about that. They may be covering up their own ignorance, you know, and uh, their own inability to figure this out, uh, which is a very difficult thing for a governmental or military authority to admit. We just mm-hmm. don't know what the hell this is. That's a possibility. Uh, you know, it's kind of a depressing possibility, but, you know, it is a possibility. It's another good reason why I think uh, it's a good idea for everybody just to get on with their own pursuits, you know, and not worry too much about whether the government is going to give us disclosure or not, because mm-hmm. uh, they may not know what to disclose. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll just ask you one final question here. Um, mm-hmm. In in all your years of looking at this stuff, what what have you learned? I think I've I've learned that there is this completely unknown realm of experience that lies at the boundaries of our our everyday reality uh, that smacks us in the face, you know, every uh, so often. Uh, And that uh, try as a culture's worldview may to try to exclude it, it's going to show up and it's going to keep smacking us in the face again and again. You can try to make UFOs or any other paranormal phenomena go away or pretend they don't exist. But 40,000 years of human history say these things are going to continue smacking us in the face. So we can either try to find out as best we can what they are, you know, or we can just continue being uh, overawed and kind of uh, completely blown away when they smack us in the face the next time. Wait, you said 40,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> what was 40,000 years ago? Because you said you well, would only do the study to 47. Well, I'm talking here about going back to the beginnings of the origins of religion and spiritual beliefs and things of that nature with Neanderthals and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there is some other type of dimension of reality you know, out there is, has been the belief of human beings since who knows when. Uh, but at least that long. Uh, and uh, this phenomena, you know, along with other paranormal phenomena, aren't going away just because a group of scientists or even a single society with a highly materialistic view says, be gone, you're not real. Right. Ain't going to happen. Well, Dr. Hazley, thank you very much for uh, doing the show and for doing it on such short notice once again. Yes. Uh, I appreciate, appreciate it. I appreciate your uh, having me here. And um, hey, I hope uh, you're you're out of college, so you're you're ahead of the game here. I, I hope you're able to get some sort of class going. That would be uh, it would be interesting. I think it would be challenging and eye opening for me, you know, because the uh, uh, what usually comes out of uh, presenting you know challenges like that to people's view of reality is uh, either your own eyes get opened more by what they know and what they've experienced. Or, you know, basically they just get pissed off as hell and leave the class. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's always a challenging and interesting experience when you do something like that. Well, I'll leave it on this note. It, it sounds like from what you're saying about this, all this phenomena, that uh, 
that if there is a right guy for the job, you're probably it because <laughs> you've not settled on, you know, a definition of what this thing is. And it sounds like you're pretty clear headed about how you'd want to tackle a timeline for it. So all the best to you and let us know if it does go through and we'll, uh, We'll we'll promote the college on the show. I'm sure they yeah. love that. We'll advertise it. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye bye. This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote the Ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to Paratopia with Jeff and Jeremy. Paratopia, Jeremy Vaney here to remind you once again of the two for $20 sale going on right now. That's right, you get my book, I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land, and my movie, No One's Watching an Alien Abductee's Story, for $20. The DVD is Region 1, which means unless you live in America or Canada or have a player that will decode it uh, somewhere else in the world, if you're somewhere else in the world, you're screwed. So, maybe not for you, but for everyone else. Um, you can watch my movie, you can read my book, you can only spend $20, and you do that by sending me an email at paratopiapodcast at gmail.com, and I will bill you through the PayPal. All right, take care, and remember, it comes with a surprise free gift. So the Jeff. So the Jer. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. All right. It's tax season. Yeah, I just got done on mine last night, so I don't uh I don't have a problem. Uh, you on the other hand, well, uh I'll just file an extension, that won't be a problem. Oh. <laughs> Dr. Hazley. <laughs> yeah, another exclusive interview for Paratopia. Is there a doctor in the house? We're good at we're good at getting the doctors. We are. Yeah. A little change of speed for this show lately. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I realized and it, <laughs> an interview where we don't yell. <laughs> right. Well, and I, I realized my prejudice toward uh, someone associated with MUFON. Like, I just automatically assume that they're ETH and they're, mm -hmm. uh, you know, dumb. <laughs> well, but I guess I, I was mean, wrong because yeah. he, well, he was both lovable. I'll say lovable. Yeah, he's and, a nice uh, smart and articulate and all, all of the good things that you would want in a guest. Absolutely. And, and, and Jeff. And a human being, and probably in a professor. <laughs> I see where you're going there. It's very clever. Yes. Well, I mean, I think um, you know, I, I think he, I think he's got a, a good idea for the class uh, going on. I think we met someone at an X conference some some yes. years ago now uh, from Cleveland. I think it was. If Aaron? I'm not mistaken, Aaron might be Aaron, who was teaching a college course in this. Uh, non-credit, of course, I'm sure. But um, I don't know. I, I think he's right. I think it would be good for uh, people to be able to go take a class on this. I mean, And especially people who may never have given it a second look for people to get fresh eyes on this from someone like him who's going to give them not his version of events, of scenarios, of all this, but strictly what the field is producing, what they're finding out case studies, that sort of thing. I think that would be really nice to uh, start someone out that way than rather than, oh, let me think, go to Above Top Secret. <laughs> right. Nothing against Above Top Secret. I love Above, above Top Secret, but... Um, However. Well, let's just say it's degraded yet again. 
uh, in the quality of conversation. So again, what do you mean again? Well, it's just it it, it was on the upswing there for a while. There was uh, you could actually go in and have a coherent conversation, but uh, I don't know. It's just uh, and, and maybe it's probably no fault of the message board itself. It's probably just the nature of so many people being on that message board trying to have some discussion in, in their own merit and their own uh, little little sphere of knowledge about the subject, and and it just turns into a obliterated goddamn mess before it's all over with. So nothing that can be done about that. That's just people. That's not the board. Um, and there's certainly some good, good folks on that board who, who will give you a good conversation and, and, uh, and all that. Um, I am still a little bit amazed that, uh, the whole, uh, Emma Woods thing hasn't shown up on that board as of yet. (laughs) Well, why don't you do something about that? Nope, I'm not doing a thing about it. No. no well, we're going to see how long this takes to break. <laughs> so we can go, ah, we've been talking about that for a month. Well, I think, um, <laughs> do you think possibly one of the reasons it's not breaking is that it takes some some work? Uh, yeah, that could be. That could be it. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think at least at Above Top Secret, there's a lot of people there that... Uh, that do think highly of the UFO talking heads, you know, in many different, I mean, everyone from Bob Dean to, um, Rich Dolan to all the way down to Billy Meyer and (laughs) George Adamski and all that. So, I mean, I think you've got a real cross section of you, of the, uh, the ufological humanity in there, which ultimately that becomes a problem. I, I think at some point, I don't know that there's really any factions of of uh, of thought in that message board. I don't think anybody really pairs off and says I'm with him. You know, that that just doesn't happen there. It's everybody for themselves and and tossing around ideas. But um like I say, it's still 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 uh a, a core of good people over there. So it's still a place worth worth looking every now and then. You know what I was surprised by in this interview is that He's not the first ufologist to have said, uh, I don't know what Rick Strassman's work is. Yeah, that's I thought that was required reading. I thought that was one of those required reading books. No, no. Um, well, and I think, uh, you know, to be honest with you, it's the only thing that disappointed me a little bit about uh, uh, about George Hansen when he was on the show. Um, you know, he basically chucked that out because he feels that that, brings the entire experience down to a physiological reaction, um, which really wasn't kind of the, the gist of what we were getting at. But I'm not sure he really understood what we were getting at there at all. Um, but no, I think when you uh, – I, I think by and large the DMT subject for the purest ufology people, uh, that's a taboo because you're on drugs. Right. And that's a problem. Because that is the immediate question that is on a ufological questionnaire. If you have a sighting, uh, that'll be one of the first questions you get asked. Because I know, because uh, I've called MUFON and I've had someone come talk to me. And, you know, I was asked, what is your experience with psychedelics? What is your relationship to altered states? Do you take drugs? Do you like dope, smoke dope? I mean, that was one of the big questions and and immediately I feel like hmm if I say 
or if I were to have it back then have said yes to any of that, I think that I've been summarily dismissed. That's that's one of the big things the skeptics uh, will will put towards it. I mean, what did we hear on Larry King from Bill Nye, the science guy? <laughs> what did he say about Bentwater's Woodbridge? Or I'm sorry, not not Bentwater's Woodbridge, but uh, the Maelstrom case. Someone was drinking. Really, someone was drinking on a nuclear base, right? Somebody's got their finger on the button and a Coors Light in the other hand. I'm not buying that, okay? So that's just how lame the skeptical excuse can be. And I think when you start talking about DMT and you start talking about psilocybin, you're immediately talking about altered states, and there's this huge prejudice that goes against that immediately when you bring that into a UFO case uh, or, or an alien abduction case. Uh, I think the purest of ufology would immediately dismiss that. So that's a problem. That's a problem because uh, uh, really it fits the subject better than their nuts and bolts does. So there. (laughs) That's it. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. I think that's why a lot of people haven't heard of it in ufology circles. This is true. And it's time for listener mail. Our first letter comes from Patrick O'Neill. Hi, guys. My name is Patrick O'Neill. I love your podcast, and I've been listening since day one. I have a question more for Jeff. Thanks. Uh I think. Uh, I've heard you talk a couple of times about Irish people being somewhat predisposed to the paranormal and was wondering what exactly you've found out. I'm wondering, because I'm 75% Irish and 25% Scandinavian, and I've been having weird beep happen as far back as I can remember. I would love to learn what you have found out. Keep up the good work on the show. Thank you. Uh, I haven't found anything out. Good job, Uh, Jeff. uh, I'm sorry. There's nothing to tell. Uh, That's just been more or less a constant uh, for me since about 92 or 93 when I started really actively contacting or being contacted by... uh, experiencers. I didn't really do form sheets or anything like that. I would just talk to them. But one of the questions I would ask is, what's your nationality? Uh, what is your IQ? Uh, do you, If you know it, you know, if they've taken an IQ test, did they know what their IQ was? Had you ever dabbled in any occult practices? Um, whether that be, God, I, I don't, and I don't mean to insult anybody of the Wiccan persuasion, but I think we could or I think society more or less views that as, as an occult practice of some sort. I view it as, as a religion, but uh, that's just me. Right down to a Ouija board. And, and some of the constants that came out, and, and another one was the, the use of psychedelics, um, which always kind of set people a little bit on the defensive, but I asked it anyway. Um, and I found that the, a lot of the people were Irish, Celtic, German, descent, that the IQ was uh, above average, that they had at one time or another in their lives dealt or been interested in the workings of a, a an occult practice of some sort, uh, whether that be interest in Ouija boards past the slumber party shenanigans uh, all the way into, yeah, I dabbled a little bit in voodoo or I made a voodoo doll or... I 
read a book of white about being a white witch, and I did a couple of things there. And psychedelics um, were not as prevalent as all of those uh, in the affirmative, but they uh, the psychedelics had been in a significant enough percentage to mention. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, what any of that means, I don't know. Uh, I've had some people tell me uh, that it doesn't mean anything, that strictly that uh, the people that I'm dealing with in the area that I am in the country, um, that, that, that's, that doesn't mean anything. We just heard Dr. Hazley say he doesn't see any real cultural uh, similarities. I have. Um, that's just me. And, and, and to be honest with you, I would say back when I was doing chats on AOL, and we'd have a new experiencer show up in the room, uh, that would be one of the first questions I would ask is, what's your nationality? And then I would kind of simultaneously IM everyone else in the room and say, bet you they're going to say Irish or Celtic. And boom, there it was. And they'd say, yeah, I'm Irish or I'm Celtic or I have Germanic blood, Hessian, that sort of thing. So I I don't know what any of it means. I have no idea. I do find it interesting that uh, you know, there's certainly a a wee folk connotation to the Celtic Irish thing, but that's, I don't know. What do you say to that? It's a passport to Mangonia type thing. So I don't know. Well, this is something that's been around, uh, in ufology. I mean, Streber certainly taken note of it. I remember at least one of his books. So yeah, what it means, who knows? Who knows? I mean, there's no good answer. Lara writes, Dear Jeremy, I was listening to the dream you recounted on the Aftermath show, and when you described the mouse coming out of your head, it reminded me of a dream I had years ago. Uh, And then she goes into the dream, and then she says, I think the dream represented something true, which is probably more complex, but this was what I could understand. Maybe what we take to be reality is simply where some part of us is focused. I think other parts of our consciousness are probably focused in other quote-unquote places, We kind of agree that there is one, quote-unquote, objective reality, but that's just another mindset that we all agree on, so it works. And to change the subject completely, thank you and Jeff for championing Emma Woods. Jacobs was just so obnoxious to her, regardless of his theories and the efficiency or lack thereof of hypnotherapy. Who would want to entrust themselves to someone who behaves like such a jerk? In the tape of their phone conversation, he was just so condescending, snotty, and unable or unwilling to hear her. Best, Lara, the one who found the feathers in the crop circle. Uh, well, thanks, Laura. Jeff, you had sort of, I won't even say that this was an experience, but you had an interesting dream with the same sort of voice that, that I had heard at your place. And although I don't think neither of us is going to go on the limb and say, this is what this whole alien thing is about. I think it was an interesting thing that this voice in the dream relayed to you um, and will certainly get people thinking. So maybe it's worth mentioning. Uh Okay. I was asleep, so, you know, all of this has to be taken with, as far as I'm concerned, with a huge dose of salt, because when one is asleep, anything can happen. But uh, I had a dream some months ago, which I don't think we've talked about on the show before, which is uh, uh, the one where I'm apparently speaking at the Gaithersburg Hilton, where the X conference is being held, and Jeremy is uh, sitting in the back of the room... And uh, he's making faces at me, and I'm trying not to laugh. And at some point during m- my presentation, when I think things are really going well, uh, Jeremy gets up and begins running through the crowd saying something about, 
I don't know. I think he had scissors and he was like, I'm running with scissors, but he's got a grass skirt on with no pants. And then he bolts through the door. And as he bolts through the door, he has to push really hard on that bar to get out the door. And his bare ass is shown to the entire crowd. And some woman in the front row goes, oh, God. So (laughs) I woke up. I I woke up uh, from that dream. Laughing and and but with a twinge of complete embarrassment for Jeremy, um, uh, for some reason that dream happened again the other night. But only Jeremy didn't get up and run out. It was just me giving this presentation, and someone, some man in the front row, got up and and started asking me quite forcefully, "Well, what are these things? What are these beings? What do you think they are? You've had." These experiences, obviously, they've had to impart something to you as to what they are. And, uh, you know, I I just kept shaking my head saying, I I don't know what they are. I don't know what to tell you. I don't have an answer for you. But he kept on, and it was persistent. And at at that point in the dream, uh, someone sounded like they were literally right in my ear whispering. I can't remember it verbatim like I told you. Uh, yesterday, Jeremy, I, all I can tell you is that this whisper started in the dream, but it shook me out of the dream as if someone were really in the room uh, next to the couch I was laying on whispering in my ear. And it woke me up. I was wide awake. I saw that the TV was on, and yet this whisper is still right there. And when I turned my head to look, there was nothing there. But it said that essentially... The beings were and are ideas that have not yet been conceived of, that they are not they are not beings per se, they are not people. It's not a race. They are ideas that no one has thought of yet. Um and they are desperate to be thought, because then thought means action, which means manifestation in this reality. That's not all that was said. It was said at one time, but that was the overall feeling that I got from it, that these beings are ideas. I thought, that's dumb. What does that mean? <laughs> and then I related that to you. So, um, I don't know. It was, it was a weird thing. It was just a weird thing with the voice. That That's what kind of freaked me out about it. Was it yeah, kept going. but you, you had also said that that the... Your thinking behind this was that these are ideas that sort of need to attach themselves to people yeah. for them to exist. For them to, to be real, right. I mean, real as we know, real, yeah. I mean, God, imagine, I mean, just think about... Um, How's that for an abstract concept? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it doesn't get much worse than that. Well, you've got all possibilities, right? Sitting in superposition and then... Anything that we choose becomes the thing that we choose. So you've got every other possibility just sitting around, like trying to break down the door of perception and, <laughs> right. in, in the form of these beings. I mean, that's pretty weird. Yeah. My God, that's mind blowing. I just, you know, I didn't know what to make of that other than, you know, that's uh, that, that, uh, and it made sense at the time when I first woke up and I leaned over the couch and I'm like, the hell was that? And what was that in my ear? Um, because uh, and I'll, I'll you know well I'll say this because uh, this seems pertinent to say is that uh, I've been falling asleep quite a bit on the couch lately, and uh, Lisa's been uh, essentially leaving me to uh, 
to die on the couch every night. And uh, I wake up, I don't know, around the 3 o'clock hour. And uh, one of these days this past weekend, I think, um, I was laying there watching TV, had my glasses on. The only light that was on was uh, next to the uh, fart chair. <laughs> uh, one of these days, we're going to have to take a picture of my living room. <laughs> but uh, Scratch and sniff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a, a light came out of the living room, or I'm sorry, out of the dining room into the living room, uh, about maybe a foot down from the ceiling. Uh, it wasn't on the ceiling. It seemed to be completely free freestanding, uh, free-floating, but it was a dash, and it wasn't a fast thing. It was, it was actually quite slow, and slow enough that I got to lay eyes on it, originally saw it out of my peripheral, and then looked over and saw it moving, and one, two, three, and it fades out as it enters into the living room. I, I had to force myself not to get up off the couch and go in and brush my teeth and get in bed. I just like, that's my first instinct is, okay, let, let, I'm getting out of here. I laid there and I waited and waited and waited to see more, and uh, and I didn't I didn't see anything else. So there's been a lot of odd light phenomena in the house lately. So I don't know what to make of that. There's also a fairly good possibility that uh, that yesterday when I took the the day off, uh, and Lisa was off of work, we were in the uh, the room I'm in now, and we heard my son upstairs playing his bass guitar. Only he was at school, and the bass guitar was in the room with us. <laughs> now, that's right. Jeff actually called. We were on the phone. I had just hung up with him, and not uh, not sixty seconds later, ring, ring, ring. Jeremy, you're gonna believe this. So I was like, like Scooby Doo was like, well, while you're on the phone with me, why don't you creep up to the bedroom and see what's in there? Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if he was there? Um, <laughs> Lisa made the suggestion that could it have been a car outside with a bass thumping, you know. Um, and it could have been, but uh, there's a really, it's, a, it's just a really distinctive sound when it's him in his bedroom playing the, the bass. Uh, you know, it re- reverberates through the floor, and that's very much what this sounded like. So I can't really qualify it in any, any meaningful way, but it was just a little weird. Well, you don't exactly live on a busy street either. No, no not at all. So uh, there's been a couple of little strange things. And then to have this voice in a dream that then, you know, precipitates outside the dream in a, in a, in a waking state where I'm a little bit panicked uh, was a little weird. Uh, and so that was what the voice said, that these beings are ideas, that this is that's what the, that like you said on the phone to me, that doesn't really jive with the rest of this, you know doesn't really what does that mean for craft what does that or craft but a disc in the air or whatever what does that mean to that what does it mean to ufology in general i mean how does that fit into a larger puzzle and i don't know that it does speaking of craft in the air speaking Uh, of this here we go (laughs) hey didn't you see one of them (laughs) uh lisa and i were at uh, walmart on uh was that Saturday? Yeah, it was Saturday. And um, we were looking for some trees to replace what we lost in our snowmageddon this past winter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were in the, the garden center 
at at Walmart just because hey they've got to have the the cheapest ficus we can get right we got to have we got to have some pines and a couple other things so it's it's basically a fenced in area chain link fenced in area open air and uh they have some sort of tarp or tent that exists on the top of the uh of the fenced in area and so we're all the way in the back and and Lisa's walking in front of me and um, she said, well, let's go in and see if they've got a chainsaw, because I'm also in the market for a chainsaw. If any of you paratopians are selling a chainsaw, I'm interested. Um, but as we went to go away from the back area, there was a part of the, the tent above me that was f- flapped open. Um, and I could see clearly the sky through it, and I saw uh, what... I originally thought was a lamp, a street lamp, like a parking, you know, like a parking lot lamp. Uh, it was silver, it was round, uh, it was flat on the bottom, and um, uh, like a tapered disc on top with three segmented lines around the top. Um, and I looked up, I saw it, and then I looked down at Lisa, and I started to walk, and I, I took a step, but then I... I didn't lift up my back foot, and I rocked back on my foot, and I looked back up again, and it was gone. <laughs> and I'm like, I looked at Lisa, and I was white as a sheet, and she goes, what's the matter? I said, I just saw a flying saucer. <laughs> Stupid. And, uh, and I rocked back on my foot, and I looked, and I, you know, I crane my neck around and I go over to the fence and I'm trying to peek peek over this edge of this tarp or what is this tent or whatever it is, and uh, there's nothing there. And the lamps that they have in the parking lot are the square black grouping of three on a black post. They're not even remotely silver and round. I went uh, as we left. We drove around back just to see. My thought was. And did I get a glimpse of uh, some sort of air duct on top? I mean, we've all seen those, those, those domed air ducts with, uh, I don't know, kind of like a, a double-decker disc-type shape on it to circulate the air. thought maybe that might have been it, and there's nothing back there on that building whatsoever to have made that shape, that color, you know, not with that detail. And then the, the thing that was weird that made me back up was that it was fairly large in that I thought street lamp, take a step, wait a minute, that seemed a little too far away to have been a street lamp, a little too high in the air, and rock back, and it's gone. I only saw it for literally seconds. I mean, that's all the longer it was, but there was something there. So, uh, yeah, there's that. Hmm. I don't know what to make of that, but I, I fully looked at all around the place for something that it could have been, and there was just nothing there to explain that for me. Nice. Well, I've, uh, I think I told you, I know I, I emailed Whitley Strieber, because I, I think it's time to get him back on the show. If, Whitley, oh, if you're out there and you're listening, we would really love to talk to you again. Yeah, um, please. But, so I don't remember if I mentioned this to you or just in the email to him, uh, that I am back on my high school pattern of waking up at 3.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like, whether something's going on or not. Right. Uh, now, unfortunately, usually something is. 
Right. Whether it's a mouse running out of my neck or... (laughs) (laughs) Other assorted craziness? Yeah, except for a couple of nights ago, I told you I woke woke up at 2.30, and this was, you told me, like maybe it was related, I don't know, but uh, that there was the the earthquake in China. So it was the earthquake in China night. Although I think the earthquake in China took place like at, what, 7 p.m. their time or something, so probably unrelated. Um, Why would it be related? Well, because... Because when that tsunami hit the Pacific Rim uh, many years ago, that absolutely was the trigger for this stiff neck where I could not move my head mm-hmm. uh, that I never went to the doctor for. And then a year later, <laughs> still had the problem. I right. was stubborn that way. Uh, <laughs> and then and that was the first time I ever did, did acupuncture, and, um, and it worked. Mm, nice. Got rid of that. But, uh, I mean, that was... That was that night, which was, I think, Christmas Eve, uh, whatever year that was. And I, I absolutely related it to that because I had read a bunch of stuff later about how people were having neck and back injuries seemingly related to that, seemingly just around, you know, right after that thing hit. Um, well, so, I mean, how, how weird is it that, that you've had some fairly odd stuff lately? I've had some fairly odd stuff as of late. And now we have uh, this eruption in Iceland. Um, yeah, we're gonna have to rethink this 2012 thing. <laughs> I think. Uh, no, nah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not going there. But uh, but I do find it weird that. Um, well, hold on a sec, Jeff. Before you get into that, let me just say that the reason I brought up the two thirty in the morning thing is that I got up. Um, I woke up feeling as though you know the fear. There's someone in the house or something, but there's no one there, and. I'm feeling this energy, not like the energy that's in me energy, but like an energy going through me, like as if a beam of some sort, but not necessarily like from top down, just something in the air between me and the mattress, uh, moving, oscillating. Uh, electrical feeling? Not uh, an electrical feeling, just... Staticky? No, no, like, uh, like if I were to put something on me, it might float off, you know, like sheets or something might float off my body or something like just this, just a weird oscillating buffer type feeling a buffer. Yeah. But also, but moving through me, you know, okay, like a wind or something. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Okay. Um, wind is good. That's a good enough. Or a pressure, a pressure, oscillating pressure. How about that? Sure. Okay. And there was just some sort of like, just, I don't even know, you know, just shapes and stuff like that. You know, once again, I find myself when I close my eyes, back in that um, sort of hallucinogenic onset stage of seeing fractals and pretty colors and all that uh, stuff uh, give uh, way to geometric shapes. And and I, I kind of wanted to see where it was going to go, but I really had to pee. So I got up and went <laughs> to the bathroom and went back to bed uh, and it was still there. I mean, whatever this energy was, didn't go away. Hmm. Um, and, and then eventually it did. I just sort of waited it out, you know, uh, I didn't like fall back asleep until it was gone, but it just sort of petered out and that was it. Hmm. So I I don't know what to do with that other than be really tired in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. But what uh, were you going to say? Uh, well, what I was going to say was, uh, like I said before, is is it, it's odd that these things, uh, at least at least for my money, uh, I have not been paying more attention to this phenomenon. But yet, there does seem to be some some weird shit going on. Uh, for me at night, I don't, I don't, I, I can't say as I put a whole ton of stock in the, uh, 
in the dream part of that, uh, I never have put much stock in that, but certainly the light in the room I saw with open eyes and certainly whatever was in the sky when we were in the store that day was there and I clearly saw it. There, there is, a, there is another uh, th- thing that that's going on that Jeremy and I are still kind of investigating. So we'll we'll mention that at a future date. But there's three things in fairly close proximity, and then we have this eruption in Iceland. We have the earthquake in China. I mean, it seems like you know, it it, it seems to be like a, either a precursor or a, a post effect to these environmental things. Um, so I'm going to ask the listeners, because I know we have a lot of experiencers who are listeners of the show, to write us at peritopiapodcast at gmail.com and tell us, you know, you know, you can look at MSNBC and you can see when the dates of these things happened. Uh, the Icelandic eruption, I'm not sure when that was, but I think it was uh, yesterday, right? As of yes. the taping of the show, that would have been Wednesday the 14th, 14th right. My birthday, uh, <laughs> Happy idiot. Birth. Uh, and so, I'm curious if any of our listeners out there who who have these experiences, did you have anything happen just before or after these things that, like, I'm thinking maybe is there a connection to Earth events like this? That I don't know. I'm I'm just curious how many of you out there actually had something that you can't deny that seemed rather off the beaten path uh, that that genuinely struck you odd i don't let's let's keep dreams out of this scenario right now let's stick to genuinely observed weird stuff i'd be curious so give us an email paratopia podcast at gmail dot com well jeff i think that brings us to the end of our show i think it does a fine broadcast this week. I'm very pleased with it. Oh, good. Very good. Me too. I'm just, I'm very tired. <laughs> well, you've been getting up late. <laughs> yeah, I can't do this. I can't, I mean, it's this weird thing of like, God, you're right back in that high school pattern and what happens in high school? Beings walk into your room and you get frightened. <laughs> right. Oh, is that what's going to happen again? Like, right. is this where this is going? So, I don't know. Huh. But it hasn't oh. happened yet. Well, yet. don't uh, don't twiddle your thumb at it. Don't thumb your nose. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying not to be scared. I, at the the two thirty in the morning thing, I I wasn't scared. I just sat there, interested to see what would happen next, and nothing did. Maybe it needed me to be scared for something next. I don't know. Well, I was scared of that light, but uh, I I sat there and I just waited, and I thought, no, don't get up. It didn't. It, Nothing's. I keep reiterating to myself when I see this stuff. Did it hurt you, moron? Did it hurt you? Did it do anything to you? No. Then just lay here and watch. This is. This should be interesting to you. This is what you're trying to study. Let's let's look at it. Let's kind of take charge of your, you know, your your fight or flight mechanism here and just sit. You know, I will not be moved. <laughs> take that attitude. So that's what I did. Repeat after me, Jeff. I I can can be, be strength. strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I just I didn't move, so uh, I didn't see anything else. But still, that I'm telling you, that light was uh, was very strange. And I'll tell you what, I would I would categorize that if I had to, if a scientist asked me, "What do you think you observed?" I would have to say that that looked like plasma. 
it did look like a plasmatic type of light. Hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's something to that. Well, maybe that's a segue to a future episode because uh, it turns out NARCAP is going to be releasing, if they haven't already, uh, I don't think they have yet, but releasing their latest paper on their plasma studies. Excellent. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to get uh, Ted and Dr. Haynes or one of them, uh, hopefully both of them, on the show to uh, talk about it Sounds in great. the very near future. Excellent. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's say, do it. Say goodnight, Jeremy. Good night, Jeremy. Good night. <laughs> Good night. Yes.